0: I'm Dr. James Hitchcock, a professor of history at St. Louis University. We're continuing with our series of lectures on the Second Vatican Council. Previously we talked about the background of the Council, and we also talked about the way in which the Council looked, as it were, inside the Church, the nature of the Church itself, the renewal of the liturgy, the renewal of the priesthood and religious life. But I also emphasized that I believe the principal purpose of the Council was outward looking council wished to address itself to the relationship of the church to the world. It wished to stimulate a new age of apostolic activity, to bring Christ to the world. And so in this session, I wanted to look at that more carefully. I mentioned in the first session how the ecumenical movement in the sense of a reaching out to others who were not Catholic got underway with the encouragement of Pope John XXIII, even before the council met. It was going on during the Council. One of the really significant things at the Council, as was noticed at the time, was the presence of official observers, Protestants, Jewish, a few Eastern Orthodox, who came by special invitation of the Holy Father, who were given special places to sit where they could follow the proceedings, who were kept informed, who were shown respect and honor and this was an unprecedented occurrence really in the history of the church and it showed that a definite law had taken place. It's interesting as a little footnote of history that the only Eastern Orthodox who were represented at the council were Russian Orthodox at a time when the Soviet Union was still a communist state and where religion was still being persecuted. The reason for that is a very complicated story involving diplomatic mistakes of one kind or another in which the main body of the Orthodox, the so-called Greek Orthodox and so on, did not come, but the Russians ended up accepting an invitation. John the Twenty-Third, who had spent much of his career in places where Orthodoxy was the prevailing religion, had great respect for the Orthodox and had hoped that the Council might, among other things, be the beginning of reunion with the Orthodox, and he was quite disappointed when that didn't happen. But... There has been subsequent follow-through along those lines and some degree of progress, although I think we're far from any possible reunification. Among the things that emerged from the Council that traditional-minded Catholics found difficult was in fact ecumenism, because a lot of Catholics said, look, we were taught, as long as I can remember, that these were false religions. And now suddenly we're being told the opposite and we're being told that we should cooperate with these people, respect them, pray with them. Even before the council was over, one of the dramatic things that was beginning to happen was ecumenical prayer services, where you'd have Catholic and Protestant clergy and sometimes Jewish getting together, sharing the same church and jointly offering prayers on certain occasions, something that could never have taken place before the pontificate of John XXIII. Well, the problem here is the old business again of whether the glass should be seen as half empty or half full. If you went back and asked a well-instructed Catholic, say in the year 1950, do Protestants believe in God? Yes. Do most Protestants believe in the Trinity? Yes. Do most Protestants believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Yes. Do most Protestants believe that he rose from the dead? Yes. Do most Protestants believe in miracles? Yes. Do most Protestants believe that the Scripture is divinely inspired Word of God? Yes. You could go on and on. So obviously every Catholic knew that there was a substantial core of Christian truth in the Protestant religion. If pushed, no matter how much they may have disliked Protestantism or suspected it, if pushed they would have said yes, it's not totally false. It's got a strong element of truth in it. So what was happening in the pontificate of John the XXIII was simply that we are emphasizing the more positive aspects and de-emphasizing the negative aspects. We're emphasizing the fact that from our point of view the glass is half full rather than that it's half empty. Now, this was, again, difficult for some people to adjust to, but it did not represent betrayal of past Catholic teaching. It represented a change of policy, a change of attitude, but it did not say that, oh, certain things which previously we thought were false about Protestantism, we now see are true. It simply said we are now recognizing that there were always true things there, and we now want to acknowledge that fact. Formal ecumenical discussion began in the hope of eventual reunion. This was, as I have said, one of John XXIII's major concerns, eventual religious reunion. He kept coming back to the words of Christ that all may be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. Certain rules for ecumenical dialogue were laid down. The word dialogue became very big. The proper way to approach people is through dialogue, it was said. Don't quickly condemn them, don't shut them off, don't cast them into outer darkness. Enter into a discussion. First of all, that means really listen. Don't come with a preconceived idea of what the other person thinks, but let the other person explain to you what he thinks, and you explain to him what you think. And maybe some of these problems will be cleared up because they may have been based on misunderstandings. And maybe if we begin to analyze our statements more carefully, we can see that we have been misled by language, and maybe certain words which we understand differently than you do, and you're not really quite saying what we thought you were saying because we didn't really understand the sense in which you were using a word. So we have competent theologians examining this kind of thing, how close or how far apart are Catholics and Protestants. And over a period of years, in discussion with Lutherans particularly, Catholic theologians concluded that what had been seen as the most basic disagreement at the time of the Reformation, the Lutheran idea that you are saved by faith alone versus the Catholic idea that you are saved by faith and good works, may not have been as big a difference as we originally thought, that when you begin to analyze what both sides mean by it you may see that they're closer together than you originally expected. The other thing is an attitude of respect, which doesn't mean acceptance. You don't abandon your principles and adopt the other person's principles just because you like the other person, but at least respect the other person. Recognize that person as a person of goodwill, and that will be the basis of further ongoing discussion. Now, extreme conservative Catholics sometimes accused the ecumenical movement of betraying the Catholic faith. You hear sometimes Catholics say well now we seem to think that all churches are equally good so there's no reason to belong to the Catholic Church. I just go and find the one that I like best. But as a matter of fact what the council says about that subject is after acknowledging the truth which is to be found in other religious groups it says but it is in Christ's Catholic Church alone that to which the fullness of his revelation has been entrusted. And so the ecumenical image which the Second Vatican Council develops as it were, instead of two opposing camps facing each other across a field, you might say, it's a series of circles and they overlap one another where they share certain beliefs in common. But then the council is saying, but the Catholic circle is the one that encompasses all the truth that is to be found in all the others, and certain parts of the other circles contain falsehood. And of course, in effect, that's what the Protestants say about us as well, otherwise they would be Catholics. So ecumenism does not mean abandoning your own principles. But a lot of interesting things have happened, I think, since the Council along these lines, among them what one might call a practical ecumenism. The ability of Catholics and evangelical Protestants, for example, to cooperate on things like the pro-life movement, and then to begin to discover how much they really do have in common with one another. This core of the historic Christian faith, divinity of Christ, resurrection, the divine authority of the scriptures, the miracles, the moral law as divinely ordained and unchanging things which they may sometimes find people in their own churches don't believe any longer, but they find someone in that other church over there does believe it. And evangelical Protestants will express great admiration for Pope John Paul II, for Mother Teresa of Calcutta, an admiration for Catholic figures that would have been inconceivable forty or fifty years ago. Now the ecumenism of the Second Vatican Council went even further because it reached out to non-Christian religions. And there was a decree on non-Christian religions in which it quickly mentioned some of the more prominent ones, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and noted very briefly what it saw as a core truth that was found in each of these faiths. Quite clearly, not having knowledge of Jesus Christ, these faiths are to be regarded as much farther away from the truth. But the council says these are genuine spiritual searches. These are people searching for the truth. These are people who to some extent have found the truth because God rewards every sincere searcher. And these are people who have come to a knowledge of the one true God, at least in some cases. The Muslims have come to a knowledge of the one true God. So the extent of ecumenical openness goes even beyond Protestantism. It's often been said that the agenda of Pope John Paul II from the beginning of his pontificate was the hope of reunion with the Orthodox. Again for various reasons that doesn't seem to be a realistic likelihood in the near future. It's been disappointing perhaps in some ways. Often people that are pretty close together with one another in a lot of ways The remaining differences begin to loom very, very large in the same way that people in the same family often fight with one another. But I think that a process has been set in motion that in God's own time might well bear dramatic fruit in terms of all of the flock of Christ once again becoming one. Another aspect of reaching out to the world was what is usually considered to be the one distinctive American contribution the council, and that is the notion of religious liberty. Perhaps we should say a word about the American participation in the council. In my first lecture when I was surveying the situation of the church in the late 1950s, I said that in many ways it appeared to be in a flourishing condition, and in very few places more so than in the United States, with our very high rate of church attendance, our large numbers of religious vocations, our big school system, etc., etc., And I said, it appeared to be less healthy in Western Europe among people's cultures which had traditionally been Catholic, but where for a variety of reasons the Church had fallen on hard times. But American Catholics, at least those that were educated, and this would be especially true of priests, theologians, and so on, very much looked to Europe for guidance, for better or for worse. For example, at the time of the council and immediately before the council, a young theologian was beginning to make his reputation who would in due course become almost a household word. The Swiss theologian Hans Kung, who originally wrote a book called Rome the Council in Reunion, in which he expressed the hope of ecumenical reunion emerging from the council. Kung in those days would have been regarded as a sort of moderate but we won't go into the trajectory of his career, but after the Council, he moves more and more in a radical direction and a very severe critic of the Pope and of the mainstream of Catholic Orthodoxy. In a previous lecture, I mentioned the man who is now Cardinal, Joseph Ratzinger, who made the opposite move. He, too, was a proponent of liturgical reform at the time of the Council, but after the Council becomes one of the principal people saying, no, 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 that's not what the council meant. That's not what the council meant. Pope John Paul II, another example. In just about every area of Catholic thought, Americans were looking across the ocean to Europeans for leadership. And it's been said, and I think probably correctly, that when the American bishops went to Rome for the council, they had very little idea what was going on and they basically decided which of the European bishops they trusted the most and had the most confidence in and they followed them. But there was one place where Americans did feel as though they were on solid ground and as I've said that was the whole question of religious liberty. It was a knotty question and a very sensitive one because to Many non-Catholics, if you said the word Catholic Church in a word association test, you might pretty quickly get back the answer, Inquisition. And you would have gotten a disquisition or diatribe on the fact that the Catholic Church throughout history has persecuted people, it has suppressed freedom, it has used its authority to maintain itself by coercion. enemy of liberty. Well that accusation is to a considerable extent true historically. There was an inquisition. Corrosion was used. The fact of the matter is it was used also by Protestants as well. So it was not a uniquely Catholic thing. But beginning with the United States of America at the end of the 18th century and then gradually extending to practically all other Western countries The modern idea of liberty came into use and the idea that people should enjoy freedom of conscience, that you don't have to believe somebody's faith, you don't even have to respect their faith, but you have an obligation to tolerate it. And the popes of the 19th century were very suspicious of this concept. They have usually been dismissed as hopeless reactionaries. Actually, I think they had some good reasons for being suspicious of this idea. We don't have time to go into the complications of it right now, but I think one reason was that they often saw it as a hollow slogan. They saw that in countries like France, which proclaimed the idea of liberty, sometimes the church ended up getting persecuted or losing its property or being kicked out of its schools or whatever. And so I think the Pope's thought of the concept of religious liberty as being maybe something of a fraud. And maybe if they had looked a little more closely at the United States, they would have seen a different reality. But in any case, there was strong opinion at the time of the Second Vatican Council that if we are going to address pressing questions that the modern world is interested in, we have to address the question of religious liberty. Does the church believe in religious liberty? Well this was an American question because we were the first modern nation to guarantee in its constitution religious freedom. This was seen by virtually all Americans as a kind of cornerstone of our whole system. If you didn't believe in religious freedom you could not possibly be a good American. The election of John F. Kennedy in 1960, as I talked about in the first lecture, was seen as perhaps part of the liberation of Catholics from the hostility which they had previously experienced. There had been strong anti-Catholic prejudice throughout most of the history of the country, but it had abated enough that a Catholic could finally be elected. But it would be very, very embarrassing to American Catholics if it turned out that all the things the Protestants were saying were true, and that the Catholic Church in fact did believe in persecution, and that if Catholics ever became a majority in the United States, they would force Protestants to convert to the Catholic Church and so forth. Well as long ago as the 1940s, there was a Jesuit theologian in the United States, John Courtney Murray, who had been wrestling with these ideas and he had been attempting to develop a Catholic theology of religious freedom that would be solidly based on Catholic principles and which would be in no sense a betrayal of Catholic doctrine. Father Murray had run into some problems. He had some theological opposition. There were actually American theologians who argued that religious freedom was a matter of what they called prudence. They said, nobody has a right to religious freedom, but it would be very troublesome in a lot of ways if Catholics, when they came to power, outlawed other religions. So therefore, for the sake of social harmony and peace and so forth, we would in fact tolerate them, but there's no moral obligation to do so. And Murray said, no, that's not good enough. And The argument went on. For a time, Murray was under a bit of a cloud because there was some opposition to him in Rome, not the Pope, but from other people in Rome, and he was told not to publish on this subject. went on for a couple of years in the 1950s. But by the time of the council, it appears as though virtually every American bishop who thought about the subject at all agreed with Murray and believed that the council had to take a strong stand. The most prominent member of the American hierarchy at that time was Cardinal Francis J. Spellman of New York. Cardinal Spellman was considered very conservative. He was a man with very strong ties with Rome. He had been a close friend of Pope Pius XII who had made him a cardinal and archbishop. He was thought to be not a progressive, not somebody who would generally favor change. He didn't play a big role at the Second Vatican Council because by this time he was pretty old. But Spellman was among those who believed firmly that the council had to come out in favor of religious liberty. He championed the cause of John Courtney Murray and actually brought John Courtney Murray to Rome, where Murray had some effect on the outcome. Now, it's not clear how much the final document here on religious liberty owed directly to Murray and how much it owed to other sources, but certainly his influence was traceable. The document on religious liberty is called Dignitatis Humanae, human dignity, and that basically sums it up. And here it's necessary to make some careful distinctions so as not to misunderstand. Ecumenism does not mean all religions are equal, there are no differences among religions, it does not mean that you can choose whatever religion you want, it doesn't mean that nobody has the truth. We saw that ecumenism is based on the assumption that we do share some common things and that we should continue to discuss those things which we do not share. Well similarly the Second Vatican Council's position on religious liberty does not say well all religions again are equally good so they all deserve toleration it does not say well everybody's trying to get to heaven in their own way so let's just give them maximum freedom. It doesn't say, well, nobody really has the truth, or we've all only got a little piece of the truth, so let's tolerate everybody so we can pool our little resources. It doesn't say any of those things. What it says is that religious freedom is rooted in the dignity of the human person itself. That a violation of religious freedom is a violation of the dignity or the integrity of the human person. Now, in the early centuries of the church, the church had not sanctioned religious persecution. For one thing, it was in no position to do so. The church itself was being persecuted. It didn't have the ability to persecute other people. And even after the church became the official religion of the Roman Empire around the year 300, there was grave misgivings on the part of some church leaders as to whether coercion in matters of religion was ever justified. The great Saint Augustine, around the year 400, was the first theologian of significance who argued, with some reluctance and trepidation on his part, that it could be legitimate because he said, once someone has been coerced into joining the church, God can use this to implant in them a genuine faith. So instead of saying you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, Augustine, in effect, said you can drag a horse to water and then maybe he will drink. But even Augustine recognized here that a coerced faith in and of itself is valueless. Faith means something only if it is freely chosen. If I'm forced to go to church and I'm muttering under my breath and cursing and so forth, not only does it do me no good, it does me harm. And so this is really what the Second Vatican Council is talking about we must have respect for the fundamental dignity of every human being. And a respect for the fundamental dignity of every human being includes a respect for the freedom of every individual human being. And a respect for the freedom of each individual human being means, among other things, respect for their freedom to choose their own religion. Even if they choose wrongly from our point of view, even if we think they have made a horrible mistake that freedom must be respected. The previous slogan that had been used often was error has no rights. So if you're espousing a false religion your false religion cannot claim any rights. And John Courtney Murray said no error has no rights but people in error have rights. People have rights. Error doesn't have any rights but people have rights. And even those people who are in error have rights. So this was the great American contribution to the Second Vatican Council, and it was a very, very important chapter in the relationship of the Council to the modern world in helping to overcome a widespread impression, at least, that the Church did not respect human freedom and kind of dispel that belief and put it to rest once and for all. The most significant approach to the world, which the Second Vatican Council took, and some people have argued that this is the single most important document that the Council ever issued, is called Gaudium et Spes, which means joy and hope. And in English this is usually translated as the Church and the modern world. Now, if you say that this document is called The Church and the Modern World, and then you say, and its Latin title, taken from the first two words, is Joy and Hope, well, then you see immediately that this must be an extremely optimistic document, that as this document studies the modern world, it must be drawing very hopeful conclusions, joy and hope. That is the spirit with which we approach the modern world. But it is, of course, always good to read beyond the first two words of a document in order to see what it really means. And if you read the next few words, it's joy and hope, grief and anguish. So the optimistic tone is immediately reversed by reference to grief and anguish. And what the Council is doing in those introductory sentences is sort of looking at the modern world and saying, what is the situation of the modern world? And they're saying, in effect, the modern world is experiencing joy and hope. There's an element of optimism, an element of euphoria, an element of hoping for the future and expecting the best, belief in progress. But simultaneously, there is this emptiness of soul. There is this sense of something wrong. There is this sense of meaninglessness the sense of loss, there is grief and anguish." So it is not, by any means, an unmitigatedly optimistic document. Those who have tried to use it in a simplistic way for their own purposes have tried to portray it as a solely positive approach to the modern world. And I think, in fact, it's a carefully nuanced, carefully balanced approach to the modern world which is both positive and negative, both optimistic and pessimistic, and one can argue, therefore, realistic. The Council says we want to address all of mankind. Maybe in most of its other decrees it was addressing specific groups, most of them within the church itself, but here they say we want to address all of mankind. And why do we want to do that? Well, because The human race has certain needs and we think that we, as the church, can help to fill those needs. In a previous lecture, I referred to what I called the triumphalistic view of the church as it is sometimes called. And the word triumphalism was coined by some liberal Catholics to mean the attitude of saying, well, the church has got the truth. And it's the duty of other people to submit themselves to the truth which the Church possesses. And they think this is arrogant and so forth, and they would say very much contrary to the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. But as I pointed out, the title of the decree on the Church itself, Lumen Gentium, Light of the World, is inherently, by those standards, triumphalistic. The church is a light seeking to enlighten the darkness of the world, and it comes back again here in Gaudium et Spes. Why are we addressing the world? We're addressing the world because why are we addressing the human race? We're addressing the human race because you people are struggling out there looking for truth, looking for meaning, looking for consolation, looking for happiness. We deeply sympathize. We deeply, deeply sympathize. We have the greatest compassion and sensitivity to your struggle. And we think that we've got pretty much the answer that you need. So as I've said so often, if this is an attitude which is triumphalistic, you have to say that it's embedded in the Second Vatican Council itself, even in its allegedly most liberal decree, Gaudium et spes. Now, of course, the church could hardly say otherwise without a complete betrayal of its core of belief. The gospel is the good news. What makes it the good news? It's the good news of salvation. The good news is you were lost and now you are saved. You were wallowing in error and now you have the truth. You were the prisoner of sin and now you have been liberated from sin. You needed this. You couldn't do it yourself. Only Christ could do it. So without abandoning the gospel itself, the church could hardly have approached the modern world in anything less than a triumphalistic spirit Now this is viewed as a very positive document, or if you want to call it a liberal document, because it's been noted, it was noted at the time, that it was not as negative and condemnatory towards the world as some previous church documents or some previous popes had been. It can be seen as embodying some of the optimism of John XXIII. The tendency, if you go back to the 19th century to Pope Pius IX, for example, who was famous for this issued a document called the syllabus of errors just a long list of things about the modern world that he said were wrong plain old wrong and i think most of them were and he had a letter writer sometime later from a bishop who said well now holy father you've condemned all the errors of the modern world could you issue another document that would recognize whatever was good about the modern world But if John XXIII was relentlessly optimistic, Pius IX, back about 1860, was relentlessly pessimistic. And he didn't see much of there was good about the modern world that he could endorse. But in Gaudium et Spes, the Council goes out of its way to say there are many wonderful things about the modern world. On the obvious physical level, there's technological progress of a remarkable kind and, among other things, this technological progress has helped to alleviate a good deal of human suffering. The progress, however, is not exclusively on the physical or material level. They don't use the word, but you might use the word humanitarianism or idealism, that there's a characteristic of the modern world that is sensitive to injustice, wants to correct injustice, has recognized certain peoples as oppressed and has sought to elevate them or liberate them, there's a lot of people talking and sometimes passionately about things like justice and truth and love and so forth. There is a dream which modern people have of creating an ideal world, a kind of a utopian outlook all of these things the council says are to be highly admired. The respect for human freedom is to be highly admired. The assertion of human freedom, even if human freedom is often misused, still the emphasis on human freedom is an affirmation of the dignity of the human person as we saw in conjunction with the decree on religious liberty. So the council goes farther than maybe any church body, any Catholic church body had ever done before in saying, we want to see the good side of things. We want to see here that, once again, the glass is actually half full. We don't want to dismiss the modern world as an unmitigated sink of corruption. And then the next step is not so much condemnation as it is to say, you're misguided and let us help you. Let us help to guide you. There were those, for example, who thought that the Council should issue a strong condemnation of Communism. Well, that didn't happen because, after all, most bishops said, well, nobody is mistaken about this. Everybody knows the Catholic Church is against Communism. We don't need to reiterate that. And then, secondly, mindful, perhaps, of things like John XXIII's visit with the Nikita Khrushchev son-in-law and so on. There were, in the presence of the Russian Orthodox at the Council, there were bishops who said, well, Maybe if we refrain from condemning communism outright, the possibility of the continued thaw of the communist system, the up of their rigidity and so on, could continue. Maybe we should be friendly as much as we can be, refrain from condemnation as much as we can, and hope that this will bring good results. Generalize that to the whole modern world. We're not here to condemn you, we're not here to excoriate you, we're not here to call you names because that won't do any good, we know that. That will simply harden you in your positions. But we do wish to gently point out to you the errors and inadequacies of your beliefs. You talk about justice, but there's an awful lot of injustice still in the world and the comfortable, materialistically successful societies of the West don't seem to be terribly concerned about the poverty and suffering of other peoples, sometimes even other peoples within their own boundaries. In my first lecture, I talked about the social encyclicals of John Twenty-Third, and this tradition continues very strongly. Paul VI himself issues several encyclicals on social and economic questions. And the recent popes, John XXIII, Paul VI, John Paul II, have obviously made it a principal point of their pontificates to address questions at the highest level, the highest global level, the international level, basic questions of international politics, of economics, of society, believing that the Catholic Church alone perhaps is in a position to offer a kind of universal moral principle or universal moral guidance that would be applicable everywhere. And this is present in Gaudium et Spes, the conciliar document. It also points out some of the inherent fallacies of utopianism, that is to say the desire to create a perfect world. Which is ignoring human sinfulness, that the church here has a clear eye, has a realistic attitude, because the church sees the sinfulness of human nature. And the church has remedies for this sinfulness. In fact, the church has the only remedy for this sinfulness, which is repentance and acceptance of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that only if that takes place is there even any hope of building the kind of ideal society that people say they want. That ignoring sin, having a view of human nature as essentially good, is a kind of a delusion that will keep tripping you up over and over again because every time you plan for a perfect society, every time you plan for a just society, every time you think you have worked it all out and how to achieve it, it crumbles in your hand. And the reason why it crumbles in your hand is because, again, you have not taken account of the factor of human sinfulness. Also, the church provides a kind of healthy sense of restraint with regard to utopian expectations, knowing that the kingdom of God will never be fully realized on this earth. The kingdom of God is yet to come. The kingdom of God is in the world to come. And while Christians continue to struggle to realize the kingdom of God, it would be a bad mistake to think you will actually achieve it in this life, and Christians have a very strong sense of that. Also moving more towards the individual plane, the anguish which people feel, the fact that great affluence does not bring spiritual satisfaction. Many people still feel spiritually empty, they feel disoriented. They don't understand that the void in their life, the thing which is lacking in their life is God. There's a discussion of atheism, it's as sympathetic a discussion of atheism as any Catholic institution and agency has ever done. But it points out atheism as an enormous lack, it's an absence of something, it's a negativity. And something therefore that will cry out to be filled by something false. And that the only true peace is to be found in God and that the Catholic Church holds this out as a possibility. Now, the Council also, in Gaudium et Spes, acknowledges that we have things to learn from the world. After all, we want to make the Gospel relevant to the world. We want to convert the world. Now in order to do that, we have to, to some extent anyway, speak the world's language. I don't mean to say by this, of course, Latin versus vernacular, but if you use a religious language that the world has ceased to understand then the world will not respond. So just as you have to translate the gospel into the various vernacular languages before you can preach to the people, so also you have to preach the gospel in terminology, you might say, that modern secular people understand. So the church says we should learn from this. And they say modern people have made discoveries which are of some value. They mention, for example, psychology. We have learned a lot more about human behavior, human motivation and so forth through psychologists than we ever knew before, and this needs to be taken into account in a variety of ways. And there are economists and political scientists and sociologists and others who have studied social problems and who have provided solutions to social problems, and we have things which we can learn from them. Now, given the amount of space that it gives to this, that is, to learning from the world as opposed to teaching the world, given the vigor of its language, you might say, I think it's pretty clear that this theme, that is, let's learn from the world, is strongly subordinated to the other theme, which is, we've got a lot to teach the world. The Council is engaging in a dialogue here with the modern world, or says it wants to, but I think a militant secularist who didn't put much truck in religion would be justified in reading this document and saying, but you're treating us as junior partners. You're treating the world as though we don't have too much to give you and you've got a lot to give us. And I think that would be correct, that would be a reading of the spirit of the document, as it could not help but be, as I said earlier, if you take the core of the gospel, the saving message of the gospel, as correct, as true. So once again, we come back to the fact that if you think that triumphalism is wrong, you have to say that the Second Vatican Council was triumphalistic, and even in its allegedly most progressive document, Gaudium et Spes, it was triumphalistic. In a curious fashion, it was the latter part of the document, that is, we've got a lot to learn from the world, that was picked up on by a lot of Catholics and I think made use of and distorted in ways that the Council never intended. I don't think Gaudium et Spes had a profound effect on non-believers so that they suddenly began flocking into the church or anything of that kind. I think there is a certain respect for the church, at least among some non-believers. But it was the Catholics themselves, and even especially priests and nuns sometimes, whose ears perked up when they read that we have got something to learn from the world. And I think that the problems, for example, which a lot of religious communities have had since the council, the unraveling of communities of sisters, the large numbers of sisters leaving the religious life, the large number of men leaving the priesthood, and so forth, Much of it is traceable to a distorted psychology, a misuse of psychology. Because classical religious life, and the Council makes this very clear, rests upon an idea of self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice. That's what religious life is all about. And instead, the way many people interpreted the message of modern psychology anyway, whether it's there or not, is... Self-fulfillment! Get rid of your inhibitions. Get rid of those things which stand in the way of you and what you desire. Well, it was impossible to reconcile that ideal with being a nun or a priest, really, and so it was natural that people would leave in large numbers and those who remain would be rather unhappy. There are some modern psychologists, not all of them, who would claim that any time you deny yourself, this is psychologically unhealthy. Well that claim is on a direct collision course with the gospel itself. He who would save his life must lose it, says Jesus. So there have been people in the post-conciliar church who misused Gaudium et spes by making it seem as though the church now had to measure everything according to the secular society. That we look out into the secular world and we see what the secularists think and then we try to bring our own practices and thoughts into conformity with what the secularists are saying. And they perhaps claim that they see a warrant for this in Gaudium et Spes, which very clearly is in fact not there. Several times I have alluded to the whole question of social justice, the papal encyclicals. This comes up also in Gaudium et Spes. One of the notable and very controversial movements that emerges after the council then sort of peaks and then seems almost in a way to be forgotten was called liberation theology. It had its intellectual roots in Western Europe as so many things do but it reached its peak in Latin America. Now one can have a considerable amount of sympathy I think for the proponents of liberation theology and what it is they were trying to do Because Latin America historically has been a country of great contrast between great wealth and great poverty. It has been an area of the world where at least in some countries the economy has been very much on the backs of the poor, the poor peasants, the poor Indians, tilling the soil and making other people rich. And sometimes rather terrible political methods, military methods, oppressive methods, were used to keep poor people down. And I think it's quite appropriate for the church where it sees this kind of injustice that the church should speak out in favor of the oppressed and remind people of the moral obligation of justice. But liberation theology went much farther than that. For one thing, it made common cause with Marxism in some cases. It was willing to support communist movements of revolution. And in addition to that, liberation theologians began to say that the social struggle itself was everything. They were, again, one with Marx on that. Don't talk about heaven, don't talk about the kingdom of heaven in the future, don't talk about saving your soul, just talk about transforming this society right now. Economic justice. Pope John Paul II became a strong critic of this kind of liberation theology even though he was sympathetic again with many of their concerns. They too went back and referred to Gaudium et Spes and claimed that that was in effect their warrant for what they were doing and saying. But again one cannot read Gaudium et Spes and reach that conclusion. By no stretch of the imagination did Gaudium et Spes intend to tell Catholics that they should concentrate their attention on the here and now. Even in Gaudium et Spes itself, which is the most, if you will, liberal of the Council's documents, it says very explicitly, the greatest lack in the world today and the lack which the Church itself can fill is a sense of God and a sense of the transcendent dimension of existence, the world which is yet to come. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.